Hey, before we begin, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might be into. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using internet trolls, hackers, and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel the giant mystery that is Russia with the help of those who know her best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters, and even a former KGB spy. Join Global News Europe Bureau Chief Jeff Semple on a journey to find out how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. Listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying This Is Why. In this episode, we're featuring the last two parts of the Global News series, Canada's Wrongfully Convicted. Now, this is a series that was written by Pippa Reed, narrated by John McComb, and produced by me. If you didn't hear the beginning of this series, I really encourage you to check out the last episode of This Is Why Online. Now, that's where you'll be introduced to Robert Baltovich, a man who was wrongfully convicted and sent to prison for murdering his girlfriend. Maria Shepard, who was wrongfully sent to prison for the manslaughter death of her stepdaughter. And James Lockyer, the lawyer who helped both of them finally walk free and clear their names. What you're going to hear now in this episode is an examination of how wrongfully convicted people can try to clear their names and what can be done in the future to prevent similar injustices in Canada's justice system. I'm Nikki Reitmeyer, and this is Why. Let's start this episode by sharing the story of David Milgard. The Saskatchewan man wrongly convicted and jailed for 23 years for rape and murder on the basis of dodgy forensic evidence and unreliable witness testimony. For 20 years, his mother Joyce worked tirelessly, drumming up support for her son's campaign. She lobbied politicians and lawyers to sit up and take notice of what she knew to be true, that her son was innocent. I'm sorry, I really don't regret any of my actions. I did what I felt was necessary at the time, and uh, we got the result that we wanted, which is David Free. The Tragically Hip wrote Weak Kings about David Milgard. It appears on the 1992 album Fully Completely, released on MCA, and was produced by Chris Tangaridis. But how, after 23 desperate years behind bars, did David's quest for justice begin? And how challenging is it for innocent people to appeal their conviction? Let's walk through more of David Milgard's incredible story and his battle for justice. In 1970, David, at the age of just 17, was convicted of the murder of nurse Gail Miller. From his jail cell, he immediately launched an appeal knowing he was innocent. 
That attempt, along with two other appeals over the space of 20 years, was rejected by the Federal Department of Justice. The Justice Minister responsible for turning down Milgard's appeal, Kim Campbell, was not convinced of his innocence. I'm convinced that the trial process was fair. I'm convinced that there is no evidence of a miscarriage of justice. David and his mother Joyce refused to give up and took their plight to the media. Joyce even confronted the justice minister herself, armed with a report which would later help to prove her son's innocence. Very, I'm sorry, it's, ma'am, if you, want your, if you want your son to have a fair hearing, don't approach me personally, I'm sorry. It's quite an, I'm sorry, but I want her to have her son to have a hearing that will withstand scrutiny by the court. Can I comment on the substantive? Excuse me, please. Sorry. Sorry, sorry. It's very important. We cannot comment on the substance of the report. Thank you very much. I tried. I, I, all I wanted to do was let her have the Ferris report, which her department has had since 1988, and she claims she hasn't seen it. Public pressure mounted until the minister asked the Supreme Court of Canada for an opinion on the case. That's when, in 1992, the court found David's conviction should be thrown out thanks to new DNA evidence and a new trial be ordered. David walked free from Manitoba's Stony Mountain Penitentiary. Well, good to be out forever, right? And that's, uh, that's all I'm really saying, so uh, I'm walking through you. But it would be another five years before David could truly clear his name with DNA evidence, finding another man, serial rapist Larry Fisher, to be the real culprit. In this series, we've also been following the story of Robert Baltovich, who was wrongly convicted of murdering his girlfriend. While in prison, he launched an appeal, but months turned to years. And becoming desperate, he called distinguished Canadian lawyer James Lockyer. There was nothing in the police theory or the Crown evidence, if you will, that went anything beyond, in my view, the, the, the manufacturing of evidence to make it appear incriminating, when the vast majority of it was the complete opposite. And by that time, I'd already served seven years uh, of my life sentence. So I was starting to despair. And so the decision to contact James, you know, it wasn't just the decision that I took because I felt he was the right guy for the case, although, I mean, he certainly was, but it was more a case of, I, I just felt like I was in a desperate state of mind and I needed somebody to represent me who, A, I thought understood that wrongful convictions happen, B, that there are innocent people in prison, and C, was good enough that he would maybe see the case for what it was. And of course, you know, when he came to see me, I believe in early 1999, I remember walking in the room and I was actually starstruck because I just couldn't believe that this man who by that time had reached such a position stature within the uh, legal community was actually coming to see me in person but I mean I remember walking out of the interview that day and I just I was on cloud nine because I thought finally somebody actually believes I'm innocent and someone is going to try and get me out of here and of course within a year I was released. Eight years after his wrongful conviction in 2000 Rob was released from prison. The Court of Appeal later agreed Rob's initial trial was a miscarriage of justice. 
that had placed too much emphasis on the Crown's case while belittling Rob's testimony. In a retrial, he was found not guilty, having fought for 18 years to clear his name. Rob is attempting to recoup some of the life that he lost through a civil lawsuit brought against the province of Ontario. But despite that, he still struggles with the unfair and misguided approach of both investigators and the prosecution, which eventually led him to becoming the suspect in his girlfriend's murder. You know, I'm not so sure that anyone who participated in my prosecution, whether on the police side or, you know, the prosecutorial side, uh, is really that sorry. Um, I, frankly, I find their behavior absolutely baffling. I mean, especially now in light of the fact that it seems that at least some of the witnesses that were called, they knew. They knew these witnesses were wrong. They knew these witnesses might actually have been lying. And, uh, you know, I just, I just don't understand it. After a nightmare lasting 18 years, Robert was finally free from the shackles of being wrongly convicted. Then there's the story of Maria Shepard. She was sent to prison while pregnant on charges of manslaughter in the death of her young stepdaughter, a crime she did not commit. Through a strange twist of fate, she would cross paths with defense lawyer James Lockyer. When I was released from prison, I ended up working for my defense counsel. I was looking for a job, and he uh, needed somebody to answer his telephone. While I was working for him, he let me know that James Lockyer wanted to meet with me. And I had never, at the time, heard of James Lockyer. My life was very, very confined. I tried to keep it as closed as possible about what had happened. So I ended up meeting with uh, James Lockyer. And it was, it was truly the first time that I had found out that Province was going to do an inquiry on the work that Smith had done and that my case was going to be looked at. I was asked whether or not uh, I would be interested in having my, my conviction reviewed. I gladfully accepted. I had a lot of mixed emotions on it because I was afraid after protecting our children for so long from that kind of limelight, uh, I was afraid of what it was going to do. So I conferred with my family members, my children, my husband, and they supported me in my decision to ask the Association of Defense of Wrongly Convicted and James Lockyer to reopen my case. And in doing so, it, it was the first gleam of hope, true hope, that I had since I had been released from prison and going through the prison system. big victory tonight for a mother who has been grieving the death of her stepdaughter for 25 years. Maria Shepard was wrongfully convicted of killing three-year-old Cassandra in a case that relied on the testimony of a now-disgraced pathologist. Today, in one stunning moment, her conviction was overturned. Maria Shepard was exonerated today in the death of her three-year-old stepdaughter, Cassandra, in 1991. I, I didn't think I was innocent. I was innocent. I am innocent. I, I didn't do anything but care for Cassandra. And the branding of being a baby killer was definitely uh, just horrific. It was horrific. Even though she was innocent, Shepard pled guilty to manslaughter. She feared that the truth could never be the testimony and opinion from respected pathologist Charles Smith. Charles Smith was like a god. Now disgraced and stripped of his license, Smith's medical mistakes and swath of pain extends to other families wrongfully convicted in the deaths of children. 
eight so far, and it is taking years to go through and free them from the convictions and doubt. I'm not sure what was going on in Mr. Smith's head. I forgive him deeply. There must be something extremely troubling for somebody not to do it once or twice. We're talking about a dozen people, at least, that he has done this to. Shepard served two years, this all happening while pregnant with her fourth child. Her family's support never wavered. You know, we've struggled and we've suffered for a very long time through something that we should have never had happen to us. She's an amazing mother. She's a strong hero. person, we know. Yeah, she's yeah. our hero. Allison Bushnick, Global News. Coming up later in this episode, what can be done in future to minimize the risk of wrongful convictions? You're listening to This Is Why, a national radio show and podcast from Global News. Download and subscribe online now. Have you ever been part of a jury in a criminal trial? The record will show the presence of the jury, the defendant, and all counsel. Ladies and gentlemen, I understand you have reached a verdict. The verdict form has been handed to the bailiff. Verdict form reads, we the jury find the defendant not guilty. Not guilty. We the jury find the defendant guilty of first degree murder. First degree murder, guilty. What is the verdict? Guilty of the defendant not guilty. Have you ever had to make a life-changing decision on someone's innocence? If you've answered yes, then you've likely played a crucial role in a central tenet of Canada's justice system. One area which has consistently come under question is the role juries play in criminal trials. Some legal experts have cast doubt on whether juries have the right amount of legal experience and or training to be able to make important decisions on a person's conviction. The jury system is there so that there's public participation in the system. Former Attorney General and Chief Justice of British Columbia, Wally Opel, explains why the jury system exists. Uh, we tell ourselves that the system is far too important to be left to the judges and to the lawyers. And we want the public to participate in the system. But there is that danger that people who are not trained in the law and who get a crash course in the law at the conclusion of the case may decide the case uh, improperly. But judges make mistakes as well. There's also a question of whether juries are truly representative. The racial makeup of juries came under the microscope in February of 2018 after an all-white jury acquitted white Saskatchewan farmer Gerald Stanley of the second-degree murder of Aboriginal man Colton Bushy siding with Stanley, who claimed self-defense. Justice for Colton! Justice for Colton! Justice for Colton! A jury found Gerald Stanley not guilty in the fatal shooting, which happened in August 2016 after Bushy and his friends drove onto Stanley's property. The Bushy family says Stanley, a white farmer, was acquitted by an all-white jury with no visibly Indigenous persons on it. Some people have stated that race has nothing to do with this process. Yet the defense felt threatened by an Indigenous person being on the jury. The defense took the strategy of deliberately excluding everyone who looked Indigenous. There were reports the defense team had rejected five potential jury members who were Indigenous. A white jury came out with a verdict of not guilty of Gerald Stanley, 
who shot and killed my nephew. This is how they treat us First Nations people. It is not right. Something has to be done about this. Justin Trudeau, we asked you to give us Indigenous people justice. I'm not going to comment on the process that led us to this point today, uh, but I am going to say we have come to this point as a country uh, far too many times. Indigenous people across this country are angry, they're heartbroken, and I know Indigenous and non-Indigenous Canadians alike uh, know that we have to do better. Gerald Stanley was found not guilty in a court of law. However, supporters of Colton Bushy maintain the verdict may have been different had there been a more balanced racial representation on the jury. Another notable case where balanced racial representation has come into question was that of Donald Marshall Jr. An all-white jury wrongly convicted him of murdering a friend. He was exonerated 11 years later. An inquiry into the miscarriage of justice took place and found systemic racism was the main reason for Marshall's conviction. Another potential problem with juries is that the law is often too complex to be fully understood by the average person. But juries, of course, are comprised of average people. Just one example is the law on self-defense. Uh, you practically yeah. have to be have a law degree to understand our criminal code in the way it defines self-defense. It's a lot clearer now than it was a few years ago, but it's a horrible wording in the criminal code that historically described self-defense. So uh, self-defense means that you can use reasonable force to defend yourself, but what is reasonable force? Is it reasonable on an objective level, or is it reasonable in the eyes of the person who's charged? So those are things that require a fair amount of thinking and sophistication. Opal says advances in DNA technology have also helped to free dozens of people. It's a lifesaver because it's really genetic fingerprinting. But also, juries need to know how to properly analyze that evidence. When the expert comes into a courtroom and talks about DNA, usually the odds are something like 300 million to one that it was that person. The blood on that, on that shirt belonged to the, to the accused. So the evidence is quite overwhelming, but still at the end of the day, you need to, uh, you need to examine that evidence. We have to do better. So how do we do better, in the words of Justin Trudeau, if we can't eliminate juries? Distinguished Toronto defense lawyer James Lockyer, who's been responsible for setting free several innocent people, says looking at cases post-conviction, there are a few areas that need urgent improvement. The first has to do with appeal courts and the power they wield. Appeal courts are not prepared to look at a trial and say, we're not comfortable with this conviction. We're not comfortable that this person was guilty. We have a doubt lurking in our minds that we can't get rid of. And so we're going to quash this conviction, acquit the individual. They do not give themselves the power to do that. In fact, they deny the power to do that. 
Lockyer says overturning a conviction isn't as simple as an appeals court judge having a lurking suspicion about someone's guilt. That means, of course, that most of the wrongful convictions in Canada went through the appeal process and the appeal courts missed them. And they shouldn't have. And that's all too rarely considered that it's not just trial courts that uh, make a mess of things when we have a wrongful conviction, but more often than not, it's the appeal courts as well that haven't identified uh, the wrongful conviction when they had the chance to. So both trial and appeal courts have a lot more work to do to ensure innocent people don't slip through the cracks. So would it make sense that to help foster a foolproof system, accountability should begin right from the moment a person is arrested? Back to former Judge Wally Opel, he says every participant in the justice system has their work cut out for them. I presided over a... Um a murder case in New Westminster a number of years ago where uh, the police uh, seized the items of clothing from the accused and they simply left it in a locker and didn't bother analyzing it until some time later. It happened in Picton mm-hmm. where uh, some of the clothing was seized and no one bothered analyzing it. Throughout this series, we've been speaking to Robert Baltovich and Maria Shepard, both of whom were sent to prison for crimes they did not commit. Based on their own personal experience with the legal system, as you might imagine, they both see areas for improvement. There are so many different causes to wrongful convictions, so many areas. Uh, one, of, one of the ones that is extremely concerning is false uh, witness identification. We've also got uh, you know, tunnel vision, dogmatic approaches by authorities and investigations. We've got racial biases. The faith in the system got lost because the accused person no longer has a voice once you get buried in a sea of authority in the criminal justice system. So what we need to do now is we need to have a look at whether or not we're actually operating our system in a manner which is conducive to proper and equal justice. And we're finding more and more now that through investigative techniques and also investigating cases that come forward, organizations like Innocence Canada is discovering that there's a lot of flaws systemically, and as a result of that, we need to address them. And it's not a matter of just addressing them, it's a matter of how expeditiously and how efficiently we do that. I think that that there is no perfect criminal justice system. I think it's actually quite possible, and tragically so, that someone who is completely innocent could actually be correctly convicted. And I don't mean correctly convicted in the sense that if they're innocent, they still should have been convicted. But at the same time, the fact is that uh, it's populated by human beings. Human beings make mistakes. But at the same time, I think the system is definitely much better than it was at the time I was wrongly convicted. I think part of it is just the system recognizing the fact that there are certain types of evidence that are inherently dangerous and flawed, and therefore juries should be given better instructions. I think that um, police, particularly in the area of DNA, are not quite as quick to shoot from the hip. I think you know, maybe they're a little bit more patient now. We certainly know about the uh, inherent dangers of eyewitness identification. We know that there is good science, but there's also bad science. The system isn't perfect, but I think that we've come a long way. I think just the fact that we're having this conversation and just the fact that people are now aware of the fact that there are such things as wrongful convictions, because I know at my 
trial in 1992, it was almost regarded to be laughable that somebody could have actually been convicted of a murder that they didn't commit. There has been a large groundswell in recent times focused on reducing cases of wrongful convictions. In 2002, a working group involving federal, provincial, and territorial prosecutors and police was set up in response to a number of miscarriages of justice across Canada. It examined the leading causes of wrongful conviction, including tunnel vision, faulty eyewitness testimony, and the phenomenon of false confessions. It made a number of key recommendations, including increasing police training on tunnel vision, strengthening guidelines around interviewing, and allowing courts of appeal to entertain lurking doubt when deciding whether to set aside a conviction. In light of the report, the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police asked all police agencies to thoroughly review their policies and procedures. I need the community to know that it could happen to anybody on the street. And if we don't take action now and we don't try and work on prevention and correction now, then our current generation and the generations to follow may very well fall prey to problems that we could have prevented. We must remain eternally vigilant. There's always going to be wrongful convictions. I know that they're still being uncovered to this day. Some people would disagree with me. Some people would say I'm perhaps rationally optimistic, but I think we're in a much better place now than we were, say, in 1992 when I was on trial. And uh, I certainly would rather have gone to trial in 2019 uh, than in 1992. This is Why is produced by John O'Dowd and me, Nikki Reitmeyer. Special thanks to Pippa Reed, who wrote the Canada's Wrongfully Convicted series, and John McComb, who was that big booming voice of it. You can find the whole series at globalnews.ca. This Is Why is a national radio show and a podcast. Download and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you download your favorite podcasts from. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.